So we have been going through Joshua and the conquest, and we spent some time there. The plan for the foreseeable future is to go to finish the conquest tonight, and then next week really begin what will amount to be the longest section, which is the vast majority of the rest of the, the time that we'll be together in the Old Testament here, is the kingdom being established, um, first in Judges and then eventually the people crying out for a king in Samuel and, and tracking with the historical developments that are going along in the society around uh, Israel as they begin to establish a kingdom and put all that together and the breakup of the kingdom and going into exile and all of those kinds of things and trying to restore the kingdom again um, as we close out the Old Testament, which is going to take a, a, a many, many weeks probably to complete all of those things. So, um, but the conquest will end tonight. We're going to take a look at some final things that the Israel is going to have to do to keep the covenant and to stay in the land. Sort of some warnings as Joshua goes to his death. Um, so we've talked about over the past few weeks how God is establishing this uh, kingdom, His kingdom on earth through the nation of Israel. He brought them to Mount Sinai. He told them the, they're going to be a kingdom of priests. They're going to be the ones that, um, that uh, give the covenant, as it were, or, or um, are the, the priests of the, of the covenant, show other people how to access the Lord, um, help, them, help the nations to understand how they might have access to the one true God. And as they're doing this, they go to dwell in the land that he has promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and they're going to take possession of it. They move into the land and begin to do that by running off the people that are there. Um, they, they kill the... Uh, oh, I'm, I already went too far, sorry. Um, they end up killing a lot of the people that are there in the land, uh, dedicating them to the Lord is part of their judgment that the Lord uh, basically told to the children of Israel 400 years prior, told to Abraham 400 years prior, you're going to go in, your children are going to go into this land, they're going to take possession of it, but the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. And so now the sins of the Amorites have become full and the children of Israel are going in to judge the people that are there. Um, so they make their way through the promised land and all of the little city-states that are in the land begin banning together to try to defeat Israel because they, they stand a better chance together than they do apart and it seems not to matter really at all. So long as, what, Israel is faithful to the Lord. That's the thing that seems to be the, the difference maker in the whole conquest. Um, it doesn't seem to matter how many people are on the other side, how many of these cities band together, so long as Israel has maintained faithfulness to the Lord. We saw this in Jericho as they went in. Uh, Achan takes some goodies from, uh, from Jericho and kind of stashes them away in his tent, thinking, well, no one saw this, and this could potentially make me richer. And uh, they go into the city of Ai, and they, well, they get their tail whipped. And so Joshua says, woe is me. And God says, no, hang on. Achan is the sinner amongst you. He's got to be taken care of. And so Achan is fished out, and he is killed because he has taken what was dedicated to the Lord. So he and his family become dedicated to the Lord. Uh, they become one with those things that he stole. And so they kill all them. So as long as Israel maintains faithfulness to the Lord, it seems that the people that are in front of them 
uh, are inconsequential in terms of their number. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. And God actually tells them this, and he's going to remind them of this later, that if, if you stand before a thousand men, I'll drive them all out. It's, it's, it's fine. It's not the number of men. It is your faithfulness to me. We're going to see that come back again tonight. Joshua is about to die, and similar to Moses, Joshua is going to leave them with some parting words. In fact, we're going to see um, a few things tonight that are, I think, pertinent for us, but we got to build the whole thing first before we get there. There are three scenes that, uh, uh, that close out the book of Joshua. They're starting in about Joshua 22 and going all the way through Joshua 24. Three six scenes, uh, successive scenes, one in each chapter, that really tell the story of what Israel must do in order to keep the land. You've got it. You've gone in to take possession of it. Now, keep it. Well, the first thing that happens is that Joshua releases the Transjordan tribes. Now, who are the Transjordan tribes? You remember them? Half of Manasseh, Reuben and Gad. And, and why are they the Transjordan? What is the Transjordan, first of all? So on the other side of the river. So this is on the east side of the river. But wait a minute. I thought, I thought the promised land was divided by the river. Wasn't the river the border? Okay, it is. So why is it that other people are walking back across the Jordan River? Ah, it's there. It's what'd you say? It's sheep, sheep and cattle. They've got a lot of herds, and they have asked special permission first of Moses and then of the Lord if they could have permission to take the area just on the eastern side of the Jordan River so that they could keep their cattle and their sheep and all of that out there because it seems to be pretty good grazing land. And after all, as the children of Israel marched into the land, they had to cross that territory anyway, and they had to do a lot of defeating out there on that side of the river anyway. So there's not any enemies out there that they have to really be aware of. There's people in the territory they're going to have to run off that they don't, spoiler alert, but, but they, uh, they, they know that they can occupy that land. And so they ask special permission. And at first Moses is really mad because what they want to do is just stay in the Transjordan area, let the children of Israel go in and say, well, y'all have fun in the land fighting all these people. And they make a deal. As long as you go into the land first, fulfill all your obligations, helping us to fight the cities of Jericho and I and so on and so forth, then after all of that's done and after your obligations are completed, then you can go back across the river and you can settle in the land. So all the fighting men essentially went across the river, fought, and then now they're going back to their families uh, across the, the river. So Joshua, realizing that they fulfilled their obligations, goes ahead and dismisses them across the river. Now, they get clever on the way out, okay? Because what would you do? Well, they were, they were probably smarter than, than I would be, I think. Because on their way out, they get to talking and they realize, okay, we're going to die one day, and so are they, and they're going to have kids, and their kids are going to have kids, and their kids' kids are going to have kids. And one day, they're not going to remember who we are on this side of the river. So what do we do about that? Because then what's going to happen, we're not going to be able to get back across 
the river. They're not going to let us back in. They're going to treat us like foreigners. And we're not going to be able to worship the Lord. So they get really smart. And they decide to build this massive altar so that Western Israel, Israel in the promised land, in future generations, doesn't bar them, the Eastern tribes, from entering into the land. You can imagine how this would be possible, okay? Just think of it like Canada or Mexico or any other country that was outside the U.S. border. If that happened and they said, well, we're Americans, we're going across the border, we're going to settle over here, but you're always going to let us in, right? Well, it would only be a generation or two before we all forgot about that. And then what happens? Well, they bar from, barred from entry. Okay, so what do they do? They set up this massive altar out there as they exit the land on the, on the eastern side. Oh, let's see. On the, the eastern edge of the western side of the land. Okay, so on, on the proper side of the Jordan River, but close to the Jordan River, they set up this massive altar. Well, there's a problem when you have a history of idolatry and you start building big altars. Uh, most people then look at that and they think, what are they doing? Well, they found another God already. They haven't even made it across the Jordan River and they've already found another God and they've begun to worship this God. And so they're building this big altar and a lot of the people inside the tribe, the, the Western tribes, if you will, figured that the Eastern tribes had already apostat, apostatized before they ever crossed the river. And so the Western tribes go and confront the eastern tribes for fear that they had apostatized already. And so there's this big long scene in chapter 22. In fact, we can see it here in uh, Joshua 22, starting in verse 16. Who will read that? The 16 to 18 passage. All right, now 19 to... Oh, wait. Uh, what verse was that you, you read? That was 1, 15 to 18. Oh, that was 1, 15 to 18. 22, 16 to 18. Sorry, I wasn't clear. 22 to 16 to 18. I'm sorry, that was probably my, that was probably my fault, but I'm still going to blame you anyway. Okay, <laughs> you, just, you just read once. Okay, all right. Well, uh, Richard, it turns out, is not a big reader. Who will read 16 to 18 of chapter 22 this time? Our, go. <laughs> he does it anyway. Go ahead. Go ahead, Richard. You've been finicky enough all night. Go ahead. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourself an altar? This day in rebellion against the Lord. Have we not had enough of sin from yourselves, from a pure from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves? And for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angered with the whole congregation of Israel. Now somebody nineteen to twenty.
All right, now on the next page of the scriptures, there, 22, 26, 29, I'll read this. Um, they start, that basically the, the Western tribes said, you got some explaining to do. And so they start explaining in 26. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before His tabernacle. Everybody's just a little bit sensitive right now. All right? Tempers are a little bit on edge. One, because these people have already decided, I mean, they've barely even been in the land, and these people have already decided we're going to live outside the land. Okay, so that's, that's enough, all right? That's enough to kind of get you a little bit queasy about them anyway, all right? And make you feel a little bit on edge. But then as they go out, they, they build an altar. And so now it's, okay, this is more evidence. And so they, it's the get your torches and pitchforks and go after them. Uh, and so that's the first thing. Everybody's a little bit sensitive, but what is what seems to be abundantly clear is that everybody gets the message that if we're going to stay in this land, if we're going to occupy this land, we can't have y'all going about being idolaters. All right, what we're going to find out is their idols are actually with them. So uh, <laughs> here we go. Um, second, let me go to the next slide here. The second scene that takes place here is that Joshua gives a farewell address and he gathers the leaders of Israel together and he challenges them to maintain covenant faithfulness. So all of these are gathered together, all of the heads of all the tribes and everybody, they're gathered together and he challenges them to maintain uh, faithfulness to the Lord. And the way he does that he presents to the people several things that are in this challenge. First, he gives them a call to obedience. All right? A call to obedience. Uh, look there in... I just lost my place here. Uh, look there in 23, verse 6. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left Verse 11, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. So he's challenging them once again. Remember this. This is a call to obedience. Then the second thing, he gives them affirmations that the Lord has actually already been faithful to them. Now remember this. Put this in your mind. A reason why they should be faithful to the covenant is what? The Lord has been faithful to to you. The reason that you should be faithful to the covenant 
is the Lord has been faithful to you. His kindness is supposed to generate their kindness. His faithfulness to the covenant is supposed to generate their faithfulness to the covenant. Look at 23 verse 5. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Now remember, when they go into the land, there's some big enemies that they got to fight. Jericho, I, we've seen some of those battles. But then as they get into their allotted territories, there's other enemies that are there that are, uh, well, how should we say, less organized, maybe. Um, outside of the Philistines, most of them are just little people and various pagans here and there that they can easily drive out. They're a little bit less organized than, you know, cities that are together. But each tribe is responsible for driving those people out. And what we're going to find out, the book of Judges kind of opens with uh, the fact that they just didn't do it. Uh, that they would rather instead keep them as slaves. But that was dangerous, right? You can't do that. So you need to be faithful. The Lord has been faithful to you. And if you go stand before them, he is going to drive them out. All right. Then he gives them a stern warning against following the gods of Canaan. Look at 23.7. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. 12 to 13. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given to you. So here is this, this stern warning. And in spite of that, when they get into the land, they see all these people and they think, why should we drive them out? Well, they... It's a waste of good people. They make good slaves. Because sometimes pragmatism becomes the enemy of what God has actually commanded you to do. Some things seem a lot more sensible when you stand in front of them in spite of the fact that God has actually commanded you not to do that. Or commanded you to do otherwise. Sometimes when you stand in front of it, look, all sin looks like this, doesn't it? All sin does. It, it, they're not an anomaly. All of us in this room probably would have done the same thing. We look at sin and we think, what? it makes a ton of sense in the moment. And then after you commit it, and after you're caught red-handed, or after you're convicted, you look back and you go, that was really stupid, but it made a lot of sense in the moment. Well, the same is true for them. So he gives them a stern warning. But then, irony of all ironies. Joshua issues a prediction, prophecy, if you will, just like Moses 
that Israel won't keep it. You won't do it. You're going to be kicked out of the land. Um, how does he know this? Well, I suppose he knows the people he's been leading for the last few years. <laughs> Look at 23, 15 to 16. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. In a a moment, as we get to the end of 24, he's going to make it even more explicit when they're going to say, he's going to say the famous passage, probably most of you have it written on your walls somewhere, choose you this day whom you will serve. And they say, we'll do it. And he says, no, you won't. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, so he, give, he goes through all of this with a prediction um, that they won't actually end up fulfilling uh, the law um, or what, what he's told to them. What we find out in the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah is going to pick up on this very thing. What we're going to see is true is that It turns out Israel is just really bad at keeping the law. But it's not just Israel. Paul reminds us this in Romans. In fact, the entire book of Romans is just a statement over and over and over again that you can't live by the law. Because when the law is given to you, sin, seeking to control your members, rises up against the law, using the law sometimes as a club to beat you over the head, and sometimes as a def- as to keep at arm's distance, it sin creeps up in you, and you want to do the very thing that you're commanded not to do. So, what's the solution? Well, Jeremiah tells us in 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. I don't have this in your verse packet, so you can write it down or uh, and come to it later. But 31, 31 and following, he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more later he actually connects this to the land and Chapter 32, 36, so one chapter later, he says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword and by famine and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. He's talking about the same time period here. He says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may 
Fear me forever for their good and the good of their children after them. See, for the children of Israel, the land is a, represents safety. It represents rest. What they're supposed to do is go into the land and drive out the serpent. He says, purge, Moses says in Deuteronomy, purge the evil person from among you. Purge the evil one from among you. That's what they're doing. They're going into the land and they're separating themselves from evil people who only seek to bring them down. That's why Joshua is giving them the warnings that he's given them. That's why Moses is giving them the warnings that he had given them, that you need to drive these people out because they're going to take your heart away from the Lord. As it turns out, Israel is incapable of properly installing the kingdom of God in the land. They can't do it any more than Adam could. He couldn't resist temptation, and apparently Israel can't either. He can't drive people away. They can't actually end up having rest in the land. Rest from the temptations of idolaters. It is interesting that when Jesus comes into the land and preaches the gospel, he becomes the rest for them. He tells them in Matthew, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's the one that's going to drive out the serpent from among them. And we're going to see that take place as we get into the New Testament. But let's keep going. So Joshua's farewell is both, has a successful ending because they're in the land and they have begun to occupy it. They've divided it up. They've begun to settle in the land and he's begun to drive people out. And so that's great. But it's also the beginning of Israel's failed history to retain the land and to properly drive out all the enemies and to really have a Sabbath rest, so to speak, in the land. They can't actually do it. So the third thing Israel's leaders are eyewitnesses of the Lord's amazing acts in the founding of the nation, and they seal and renew the covenant. They do this four times. They do it twice under Moses, and they do it twice under Joshua. We saw the first one back at Gilgal. They renewed the covenant there, and now they're doing it again. So they go through a covenant renewal ceremony there in uh, chapter 24. So this is the third and final thing that is driving home the point. Not only does he give the farewell address, you've got to do this, you've got to be sure to drive them out. Not only does he do, do the people, the tribes of the Transjordan install the big monument that basically says we're faithful covenant keepers to the Lord, but then once again, there's another reminder here at the end, you have got to keep this covenant. So they, they basically redo the covenant, they reaffirm the covenant and everything. There's a problem though. Covenant renewal is necessary because they have already fallen into idolatry. Look what's said. It's very understated, but look here at 24, 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. What does he say there? What's the next command? Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt. Serve the Lord. It seems as though Israel actually is kind of hanging on to some family heirlooms 
that have been handed down from uh, family to family, from generation to generation, and those heirlooms, oh, look at that, are idols. They're still holding on to them. So he's telling them, once again, put these idols away. Get rid of them. Now, Joshua actually gathers them together at, she- uh, at Shechem. Did I miss one? Oh, covenant renewal is necessary because Israel has already fallen into idolatry. Idolatry is that blank. I forgot to put it up, sorry. Idolatry. Joshua gathers the people together at Shechem. Now, you might ask, I don't remember Shechem. Where's Shechem? I've already forgotten Shechem. Shechem's right in the cotton pick in middle of the land, okay? So that's what my mom used to say, the cotton pick in middle. Um, right there. So Jordan River, in the baptistry here would be the Dead Sea. Sea of Galilee's up here on the ceiling, all right? Um, they crossed right over, let's see, down here. Right down here is where they crossed. There's I and Bethel. Jericho would be down here on the wall above the baptistry. Shechem is right up here. Now, why Shechem? Well, Shechem is the place where uh, Jacob met God and put away his foreign gods and buried them. Look at uh, Genesis 35, 1 to 4. Somebody read that out loud. So, uh, most likely the reason they're here at Shechem, it could be just because it's in the middle of the land. It's convenient for everybody, all right? It's a good middle ground, middle territory. Um, but it it's probably has some connection to their forefathers. This is where they put away their gods. This is where Jacob put away his gods. And so we're coming together to put away our gods to guarantee this is once and final for Jake, uh, for. Um, Joshua dies, uh, that they're going to they're gonna put it away, and uh, they're going to bury all of their gods. This is, this is it. This is the final thing. But it, we come back to this time and time again. They're commanded over and over, and they continue to disobey because they're already idolaters of their heart. Jeremiah is pointing this out to us. This is the problem that they see after hundreds of years of living in the land and hundreds of years of disobedience. It's not the commands that are the problem. It's not that God should have just made it more clear to them. It's not that they should have just tried harder. But just white knuckle the obedience and just, well, I just need to, I need to learn my lesson. Their heart is wicked. And it's producing in them disobedience. They're desiring to disobey. Because their heart actually isn't with the Lord to begin with. They don't want anything to do with worshiping God. When they meet at a covenant renewal ceremony, it's sort of like the youth camp. 
Everybody sings the praise songs and walks away feeling really rejuvenated from the big tent revival. But they get on the other side of the river and they see the people that they're supposed to drive out and they think, well, they would just make better slaves. Because honestly, I know the vineyard's already planted. They know the vineyard's better than I do. Makes more sense, doesn't it, to keep them. It's not that long before they desire to disobey because their hearts are wicked. So what is it? What is it that makes the difference? What is the thing that actually transforms them into covenant keepers? Well, the Old Testament tells us that it's not the works that they do. It's not the it's not the obedience to the law that's actually going to save them. This is a myth about the Old Testament, by the way. That, well, they were saved by their works, by the keeping of the law. No, because there were people that were saved in the Old Testament. They couldn't keep the law. Um, but actually, he tells us in Genesis chapter 15, it tells us with Abraham. How was Abraham made righteous? Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord and he counted him as righteous. How are you and I counted as righteous? Belief. It's been belief the whole time. Then we get to the land And there's some things about the land that are just obscure to us that are hard to understand. Um, There's uh, some basic premises that we have to understand about their staying in the land. As I said, the land for them is security. The land for them is rest. They finally have a home. These are slaves. They've been slaves for hundreds of years. And finally, they have a home. But the way they understood the land is that the Lord was the ultimate owner of all of the earth and he was free to distribute it as he will. We believe this very same thing about land in general. But the biblical depiction of of land, if you will, as you trace it throughout the scriptures, is that God is the owner of the land. So you go back to Egypt and all the land there belonged to Pharaoh and everybody would pay him uh, the right to use it, essentially. But Pharaoh was the owner of the land. Well, Israel comes out of slavery and the understanding that's developed very early on is that God is the owner of everything. We're just renters. That's it. He gives permission for us to use the stuff that he already owns. And he therefore has permission to distribute the land as he chooses. So God owns it. He's given it to man to steward and to have dominion, but he can distribute it as he will. There's a problem because since he is sovereign, he also has the right... Well, I'll go ahead and put both of them up. He also has the right and the power to dispossess old owners and replace them with new ones. Uh, look at Amos 9, 7. Tell me I put that in there. Does anybody see it? Because I lost it. I thought I was on the last page, but apparently I don't see it. Oh, there it is. Um, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring, you, uh, bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? And the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Ker- Meaning, I gave them all this land. This is mine. All right, you're just like them. Don't think you're special. I will thump you. 
<laughs> it's basically his, that's the, that's the meaning if you translate it directly from the Hebrew. Um, so, uh, so it's a warning. He, he owns it all, and he has the right to dispossess old owners and replace them with new owners, which Israel should be very familiar with because that's what they've just done, but that's what we're going to see happen to them later on. Then there's another thing that we have to understand about the land. The Lord chooses the place where he dwells with his people, and it's according to his good pleasure. And in order to enjoy presence with him, they have to live lives of holiness. We've already seen the problem with that, though. They have wicked hearts, and they can't. So he chooses who takes the land. He chooses where he dwells. And so if he, if he sees uh, unholiness in his people, he's either going to evict the sinner from his presence, as we saw with Adam and Eve, as we will see with the children of Israel as they go into exile from the land, or he will remove his presence from among them, sometimes both. We see that in Ezekiel 8 to 10 and chapter 20, where before uh, Israel is ransacked, the glory of the Lord disappears. Now, those who keep his covenant enjoy his protection and his provision at his sacred place. Only covenant keepers. Enjoy that kind of security, eternal security, and presence and provision in the place that God has allotted for them. Now, what we're going to see is that in the end, the wicked will all be torn from the land. And this is we're talking about in the end of all things. When everything is accomplished, all the wicked we're going to see are torn from the land. We see that in the last day of judgment. He's got, he owns the whole earth. Here are the wicked standing before him. What happened to them? Eradicated. Thrown into the lake of fire. Gone from the earth. Completely dispossessed. But there, I, I can't help but feel a little bit of angst and animosity or anxiety, I guess you'd say is the right, probably right word. Because I know in my heart of hearts, I'm not a covenant keeper. Paul tells us there's no, none righteous, no, not one. Or, and Isaiah tells us that um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in this position of not being covenant keepers. How is it then we could possess anything from the Lord? Provision, presence, protection, any of these kinds of things that he promises to his covenant keepers. How is it possible that we could Unlike, yeah, unlike the Old Testament age, Christ does not authorize or um, commission the church to establish a geopolitical kingdom. That's not what we are here to do. In spite of what happened in history, the church is not here. <laughs> the historian over here is going, yeah, that's right. <laughs> In spite of what happened in history, the church is not required to establish and, and, and is not told to establish a geopolitical kingdom in this age. We're not a, a physical kingdom like that. But 
We do have a spiritual kingdom, and we establish the spiritual kingdom by the preaching of the gospel. That's what establishes us, you might say, as an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. So the church would be an outpost, an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. And the people that come in are the kingdom of heaven's citizens. The people that join the church, if you will, are the kingdom of heaven's uh, citizens. And we, as a church that preach the gospel, have the right to stamp that passport. We look at their lives. We see the fruit of their lives. We, we see uh, if they are, in fact, covenant keepers who have had their heart transformed, as Jeremiah says, given a new heart by the Lord so that they are now uh, people that, uh, though they sin, they repent. That they have an inclination toward the keeping of uh, the Lord's covenant, if you will. But what do we see happen in the New Testament? It's Jesus is the one that actually establishes this on the Sermon on the Mount. He tells us uh, that the meek will inherit, what does he say? The earth. But there's, there's an importance here. Because Jesus has been the one to actually transform the word. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Psalm 37. Psalm 37, 11 says, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight himself in abundant peace. What is David talking about there in, Psalm, in the Psalms? He's talking about the land that they live in. The promised land. The word land and earth it's the same word in Hebrew. So he uses the word land. We know by the context what he's talking about. He uses the word uh, aretz, which means could mean earth, could mean land. Jesus takes that, brings it into the New Testament, and says the meek shall inherit the earth. The inheritance, the rest that is now given to those who are in Christ is not the land, the promised land. It's the entire earth. All of it. Well, what do we see happens in the end? What do we see happens at the end of all things? Christ returns. And what happens to the wicked? Torn from the earth. They're separated completely from the earth. What happens to the earth? It's made new. Who's given the earth? You. Because what happened is not that I all of a sudden became a covenant keeper. And I was allowed to take up territory and residence inside the kingdom of God. No. Christ came down and became a covenant keeper for me. He earned the earth. He earned it all. And instead of keeping it for himself, he shares it with those who believe. Christ is the covenant keeper. He is what Israel could never be. What they proved... For hundreds of years, they couldn't be. Christ comes down and is now. Our job as a church, what we're commanded to do by Paul, by others, is not purging the pagan from among us. That's what they were charged to do in the Old Testament. Purge the pagan from among you lest they distract you. We're not charged to purge the pagan. We're charged to purge the imposter. The one who is taking up or claiming to take up residence inside the kingdom of God. Who is actually not a believer. We're charged to preach the gospel. Identify sin. 
Call people to repentance. And when they don't repent, help the world to see that's not a citizen of the, of the kingdom of God. That's what we're called to do. Paul brings that back in 1 Corinthians 5 when he tells the church at Corinth, that person that's sleeping with their stepmom, you've got to get rid of that person, basically remove membership from them. Why do you have to do that? Because you've got to purge the evil person from among you. He brings the passage out of Deuteronomy and into the New Testament era because that's our job is to purge the imposter. To make sure that we're holding each other accountable to keeping now the covenant that we're enabled to keep by the Spirit of God. See, that's the reason we don't drive the pagan out. If you have the Spirit of God in you, the pagan is of no consequence. They're not going to lead you away. You have the Spirit of God within you. You preach the gospel to them. Some of them will believe. That's our charge. But it's because Christ has kept that for us. So what does it say about our obedience? You can't white-knuckle it. The solution isn't try harder. Jesus tells you what it is. Matthew 4.17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The mark of a Christian, the mark of one who has been transformed by the kingdom of God, the one who has, been, who has the Spirit of God dwelling in him, is convicted of sin and urged to repent and has covenant renewal ceremonies daily, comes back to the Lord and trusts yet again in the blood of Christ. Trusting all the more in Christ as the covenant keeper for us. Questions, comments? Anything? I refuse to believe it was that clear. <laughs> all right. Well, let's pray, and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father thank you seems inadequate to express our gratitude for making us, transforming our hearts into repentant hearts. To giving us hearts that desire to be your people. That don't desire to flee into pagan idolatry. But desire to root sin out in our lives. We pray that the fruit of that in our hearts, the fruit of the faith that you gave to us, the heart that you transformed in us so that we might believe, that that fruit would be evident in our congregation First, in our desire to worship you. To come together and just sing praises to your name. Second, in our desire to be creatures of the word. 
our desire to pour through the scriptures and understand them and apply them to our lives. That we may be governed by the book, that we may be people of the book, and that we may refuse to deviate from it. That it would transform us into humble people who earnestly desire to live with one another in peace and harmony and unity. In spite of our differences, in spite of our quirky personalities, or in spite of our opinions, in spite of our thoughts and differences and all those many things that we could easily put them to death for the sake of the gospel. Because you've transformed our heart. May it be borne out in repentance. And we see that fruit. Church. That we're not people that just simply believe we can just be better, we can just think better, we can just, if only we were better, that we would understand that you love us and are transforming us every single day into the image of your Son. And you're doing it through repentance and faith. May we see that fruit in our church. That then what stems from that would be copious amounts of evangelism, telling other people about the hope that we have, what we found in Christ. Lord, if there be sin amongst us, root it out. There is, there is in my own heart, root it out. As painful as that may be, root it out. Give us hearts to desire all the more every day to seek your will to live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.